Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib. I'm so excited to take you through this first part of a two-episode journey on The Problem with Magic, featuring Phil Ford and J.F. Martell from the Weird Studies podcast. It's, it's still, I pull on this lever and this thing over here happens. Exactly. That you're, st- you're still relying on the same causality. It's like, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. You know, it always strikes me how many people are into magic and believe that there's some sort of spiritual world working or whatever, but what don't think twice about commanding the beings that they say are there. I'm, I'm going to tap Saturn here for, because uh, I need... <laughs> I yeah. need this or that and the other thing. And um, have you ever offered a prayer to Saturn, to Cronus? Have you ever spent time with this god? Or <laughs> who, mm-hmm. it's like you're just you're suddenly harnessing energies that you know they might as well not exist when you're not dealing with them. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. and and that's the thing about magic is that like oh just do these things, follow these practices, do like make a sigil. How much introspection is there even on that process? But then we don't know how Saturn interacts with the other spiritual beings when you decide to employ a fragment of that sort of um, that sort of <laughs> super nature body, you know, amongst all the other beings. Friends, as we find ourselves in this new world, this weird world that we feel we're in, people are reaching more and more than ever uh, in recent memory, it seems to me, for magic. It doesn't surprise me because this new weird world feels very unfamiliar to us. We want tools for it. Maybe we feel humiliated by the sense of a loss of control in the past few years, having been in the sway of governmental and corporate power or the force of a disease process entering into our lives. Um, Whether or not you even agreed or disagreed with what happened during the pandemic or the elections or wherever you are, whatever giant force has been going on, you still might feel that you've been subjected to things beyond your control. A kind of humility might have crept in or a lack of confidence. And Maybe that feeling is false. Maybe it's true. Maybe you thought you had some ability to direct events that you did not recognize or that you had something to offer the world that you held back on or that your offering to the world was dampened by the events. Um, Obviously, I could go into this landscape more, the failing power of social media, the discombobulation of the EU and UK, the dullness of the hum of election anxieties, the instability of economy and politics, hopes for cultural renewal amidst all of this. Anyway, we see astrology now in a casual, everyday language. In lots of places, tarot cards, spell casting, the resurgence of Dadaist protest, witches, talk of weird weather, um, and more, UFOs even. Before we enter that rabbit hole and deploy magic, bring it into our everyday lives, maybe we should stand back and ask ourselves if magic is the right tool for this level we're in, or if witchcraft is the right tool after all, or if it's just an extension right now, mostly, of the materialistic, consumerist, scientistic worldview, along with 
that worldview's accompanying money and time forms which have fallen ill, which are sick. What if what we need to achieve is far more radical than a sort of trick, meaning a trickster-ish disruption to the material laws we understand? What if we need to map out this world through the dissolving of materialism? To strive for and encourage others into real free thought, free will, free feeling. Perhaps what's needed is a new circulating of the spiritual into life, so that it does not lead itself back into the material, whether scientific or dialectical materialism. If none of that makes sense, don't worry. I'm also making my way through this new level that we're on. In the case that what I said is true, that we need to achieve something more radical, we're going to have to investigate magical rituals and capacities and review if they really are just extrusions of materialism. A good example is clairvoyance. I, I talked about this on episode 122 with Scott Elliott Hicks. You know, he points this out and I ran with it, which is like, is clairvoyance really a non-materialistic tool? So, for example, if someone comes to a clairvoyant and says, hey, I can't find my necklace, can you tell me where my necklace is? Well, obviously that part is materialistic, but it doesn't have to be a necklace. It could be something more valuable, or maybe someone's asking for some kind of advice. But here's the point. If the clairvoyant you know, closes her eyes and envisions the necklace and says, oh, hey, I see the necklace. It's, you know, fell behind the refrigerator at your uncle's house. And then the person goes and they get their necklace. If the clairvoyant is still seeing pictures of material stuff, if the inward experience is just the normal relationship between the senses and materiality and objects and space and time? Are we really dissolving the normal relationship between the senses and material? Or are we just adding a power to it? Adding a sort of technology. I've always hated that Arthur C. Clarke line, that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, mostly because it's true. <laughs> magic is just a sort of technology, and technology is just a sort of magic. So if the playing field is equal, then are we really closer to the task at hand whether we use one instead of the other? And is moral technology possible in a materialistic world, or is moral magic possible as well? Maybe you think morality doesn't matter, but let's just move past that for a second. <laughs> we come back to it in the episode, because there's a lot of discussion about that on this first part of the episode, and then again on the second. If we're using the stars and the runes just to tell the future to make better material choices then are we really engaging in something spiritual, or is it just a materialistic survival strategy? I'm also reminded here of a time I went to this acupuncturist in San Francisco. And she gave me acupuncture, you know, for a while. I would go in, and she also would do muscle testing. And one time I went in, and she gave me acupuncture, then she did muscle testing, and she came back and she told me I was HIV positive. Now, I knew, first of all, that I wasn't because I had gone and gotten tests before then. Um, 
And I knew that that wasn't the root of any of the symptoms that I was dealing with. But I was so irritated with her, not just because that was completely irresponsible in the sense that you're supposed to have counselors on hand. There's a whole cultural conversation around HIV that, uh, you know, can help promote health or, you know, send people into a, a psychological spiral if it's not sort of handled well and there's community discussions, et cetera, et cetera. But I also thought, look, why I didn't come to you for Western medicine done in a different way. She was, of course, evading traditional Chinese acupuncture, which has sort of different pathways. But if acupuncture and Western diagnoses and even the names of diseases and how the organs work and all that are so interchangeable, then what was the point? Why wouldn't I just go to the doctor for what she was giving me? Um, I, I thought this isn't an alternative practice. This is not alternative medicine. It's just doing these different moves with different, you know, different situational props than what the other doctor is doing. And it's not doing as good a job. <laughs> anyway, that reminds me um, of the way that people use magic in a lot of ways, where it's just swapping out props, swapping out objects, swapping out forms of intention, but still living in the same materialist impulse. Then there's the often held leftist view of magic in the event that leftism allows any magic in at all, which is that it's the tool of the oppressed, especially witchcraft. It's feminist witches versus the materialistic patriarchy or non-productive proletariat sorcerers versus a capitalist machine. When in fact, both oppressor and oppressed use magic, and oppressors are far more able to wield it, which, by the way, can tell you something about the substance of magic, that the oppressors have a better handle on it. But it's not like the right or power politics or conspiracists help either. It's no surprise that people inclined to conspiracy theories um, are inclined to believe magic and ritual either. Conspiracy theories focus almost entirely on the physical world and power. You can believe in the so-called globalists or the Illuminati or spirit cooking or soul cooking or whatever, but it's just a different version of the physical world. It's so focused on material phenomena, while at the same time proposing to be a, a spiritual take on things. So the people critiquing these vast networks of power that may or may not exist even still don't really have the right view of spirit. And in that they're like the leftists who hold magic and witchcraft as a spiritual alternative that belongs to a certain class. Maybe the problem is that we're trying to think our way out of materialism or act or will our way out of materialism with magic. But in a materialist world, magic tends to be just as materialistic as everything else. And if it's the case that the materialist worldview wants to collect everything and co incorporate it in, since 
that's all it can really do. Materialism can only really accrete from the outside like a crystal. It can only calcify and ossify and reify. Then what is truly spiritual is being decomposed into this calcification process, into just another layer of materialism. And therefore, what is truly spiritual needs to be lent our warmth and strength, not just accessed and used to make shit happen in the material world. This may sound like I'm telling people not to use magic, or maybe you'll think that across the course of these episodes. I hope not. On top of the obvious cultural (laughs) thing, which is, you know, magic takes different forms in different contexts, it is also some people's real destiny to use and consider magic in their lifetimes. In the same way, it's some people's life path to explore and work with the sciences or money or sex or drugs or whatever. For me, the freedom to encounter and live out your karma and the compassion that we need to lend each other when we're all on these pathways (laughs) through life and through understanding our individuality and how that relates to the all, the infinite beingness, (laughs) that's the highest principle. Well, love is the highest principle, really, but I just sort of broke it down into those smaller components or more digestible components. My question is more about how to characterize magic in this time. And if it's not up to the challenges we're facing, and I don't know that it is, let's figure out how it fits in on this level and turn to what new forms and mysteries we need to investigate, need to give our attentiveness and care to, and to relate to so that we can traverse this new territory. On the next part of this episode, which should come out shortly in the midst of election anxieties, I think (laughs) we will discuss those pathways. What tools, I don't like that word, but this is the intro of a podcast, so I'm just going to use it, (laughs) what tools we can use. I am really happy to be offering these longer conversations. You know, it's over two hours. Um of talking. So I wanted to split it into two and I want to have these longer conversations with guests so I can break them into multiple episodes. Cause I want to just keep going deeper and deeper instead of content. Uh, I want to have real depth. So I want to have four or five hour conversations with the same person and break those down. So we can have people on the podcast uh, for multiple episodes. It's great this time that it's two people, JF and Phil. And I think those kinds of bursts of content don't have that lasting power that I believe this show and the episodes offer something that, you know, often, at least not always, but often has value that you can turn to again and again, because I don't try to do just sort of topical stuff. Um, (laughs) Well, if it is topical, like I'm saying, the challenges of today or what we face, it's topical for at least a long time (laughs) and not just a a burst or a single issue. And it's also as I move away from social media altogether, and it seems like a lot of us are right now, um, I want to be able to just give more and more substantial stuff to you um, and offer that to the world. 
including these episodes, including courses. I'm going to be giving one-on-one writing coaching and online writing courses, workshops on writing in horror, and so on and so forth, and more books, of course, and stories. Let me know what you think about all that. I'm so happy to offer these two episodes to you. Weird Studies is, in a lot of ways, a sort of sibling podcast to this one, which is why you should check out Phil and JF's course, Weirding. It's an eight-week course on the NeuraLearning platform. Um, That's N-U-R-A-L-E-A-R-N-I-N-G, neuralearning.com forward slash weirding. Even though at the time this episode is going out, they've already done two sessions of those eight weeks, uh, you can still access the recordings and... uh, and jump on for the rest of the courses. I love supporting people that I love and whose work I take seriously, which is why I gave their course a shout out. But Against Everyone with Connor Beeb does not have sponsors. The way the show exists is by people like you supporting on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. If you do support it there, thank you. If you don't, please consider supporting it now. It makes all the difference, really. Please help keep this show advertisement-free. Um, I'd like to stand in my integrity as much as possible with everything I do. It feels great to not have to talk about some dumb products or businesses I really don't care about at all, and that you don't either at the top of the show. And instead, just thank patrons for supporting it. So go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and yeah. Okay. So go do that. Okay. Now that you're in the group of people I'm saying thanks to when I say thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Hi, thank you for supporting against everyone with Connor Habib on Patreon. The last thing to say um, before we start is that I've been messing around with the theme song with my good friend Ben Chasney, a.k.a. Six Organs of Admittance. He's written a few variations of the song, and uh, I'm loving them. So we're going to start with one of those variations today. Here we go. Hello, everyone. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Hello, Phil Ford, J.F. Martel. Welcome back. It's good to be here. Nice to be here. So I I want to start in maybe what might seem like a strange place even for us, which is I'm going to talk about a dream, and then uh, you guys are going to bring something similar to the table. And I, I say it's a bit of a strange place because, you know, we have this tendency to think that other people's dreams are boring, uh, unless we're a psychoanalyst. Um, And one of the reasons why we think other people's dreams are boring is because the spiritual state is not something that's very communicable. So, like when we have a a trip or, you know, you go into the fairy realm or whatever, you encounter something that can't really be brought back because it's almost like a locale. So, you know, the gold comes back as crumbs. even though it might have such an intense presence for you. And also, I think, you know, our dreams are 
our angels interacting with us. So it's not always appropriate to talk about them. <laughs> but I, I, I think it's important to talk about these dreams and directions um, because they set the conversation here. And I'll start with mine and then I'll turn it over to you guys. Um, you know, I, I had a dream the other night where uh, I saw someone I knew. And this is the part where it's kind of boring because I'm going to say, I'm not going to say whose name it was because people who are listening to the show might know who it was, <laughs> might know this person. So I saw him, I was sitting in an audience in a theater and his name was said again and again and again. And he was looking at me and he felt very much like a visitor to my dream, not part of me in the sort of astral realm of dreams, showing something to my own composite makeup, but rather someone who had intruded. And I woke up with his name echoing in my head and I went back to sleep and I had a few more dreams, but then he appeared again. And by the time he appeared again, and always, you know, I'm sure people are familiar with that feeling when you have a dream about something and then you're dreaming about completely different stuff, but then the image or the person or the word recurs and it has uh, an eerie or sort of more real feeling. Um, and when he appeared again, I responded with a book and it was a book that I had written in that plane at some point, unbeknownst to me, that was against magic and against witchcraft. It wasn't a book about burning witches or glorifying science. It wasn't about praising a certain kind of religion. It was just a, a note about why <laughs> there were problems with this person appearing in my dream, why there were problems with witchcraft and magic. And I told you guys this before we recorded the show, um, before we were setting this recording, because um, this is a theme that I want to talk about. And when I brought this up, um, the problem with witchcraft and the problem with magic and how to sort of find our way around it, JF, you responded with a dream of your own. And so mm -hmm. I hand it to you to tell me. Yeah. yeah, I was actually quite um, surprised to hear you say that because Although I hadn't interpreted my dream in terms of um, ideas concerning witchcraft, uh, the connection was immediate, immediately apparent to me the, the minute you, you described your dream. And I had a dream just a few days ago where um, I ended up uh, wrestling with a witch, but this was like a, like a, a classic Halloween witch, like a kind of like swamp hag. You know, and uh, she it was in this dark place. I think it was like it was one of those those situations where you're you're uh, you know that you're inside a building in the dream, but it looks like you're outside. So there were like trees and stuff. Um, and uh, she just kind of pounced on me, and then we started to fight. It was actually really kind of brutal, <laughs> like a real fight, like you know, a real kind of gritty um, uh, hand to hand um, melee. And um, in the end, I was able to hold her down, <laughs> uh, but she was extremely, like, ridiculously strong. And it took all my strength just to hold her down, pinned to the ground. And uh, that is when either the dream shifted at that point or I woke up. I'm not quite sure anymore. I was trying to remember what happened next. Um, but that was the dream. So the minute you describe that, your dream, I, I, um, 
that one came to mind. And it was one of those dreams that, you know, I thought of a little bit upon waking, but then quickly forgot about, which tends to be the the pattern with me these days. I, I'm not journaling my dreams as I should, um, but it suddenly called attention to my dream life and maybe there's something going on there. And yeah, so that that was my 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 little note of synchronicity that I experienced when you recounted your dream. Yeah. Thank you, Phil. We await your, your surprise. My, my judgment. <laughs> I will now judge your dreams. Um, I, I I don't uh, synchronistically have a dream uh, re- from to report recently that that deals with any kind of ambivalence around magic. I did dig through ac- um, after our conversation, our private conversation off air. Uh, I did dig through an old magical journal uh, slash dream journal that I keep on my computer uh, because I'd vaguely remembered a dream I had a long time ago that had to do with uh, an evil sorcerer and a good witch. And the polarity between good magic and bad magic was very pronounced in that dream. And I don't know if it's exactly in line with what you're talking about, Connor. So I won't necessarily get into that right now. Maybe, maybe I'll, I could return to that if, if the conversation takes a certain turn. Um, but I suppose just by way of a preliminary comment, I have two thoughts. First of all, that uh, magic is a dangerous thing to take on board in your life, though that, as I've said many times on the show, on our show, Weird Studies, is not necessarily not a reason to to uh, to avoid magic. Um, just, you know, be aware uh, this is... A spiritual practice without guardrails, right? Uh, you can set up guardrails. I suppose actually it's a little bit untrue to say there are no guardrails, but um, fewer of them and less reliable. Uh, and when I see people incautiously bringing that into their lives, I worry. And one reason I say incautiously is that if it is sort of in the modern dispensation to say, well, you know, we've grown up past childish superstitions regarding the existence of good and evil. Evil is just a fairy tale that we've been told by church authorities to keep us in line, etc. Then, you know, I feel like the, you know, magic is something that actually got me face-to-face with evil, undiluted evil. Uh, a real taste of evil. And so I worry that people who rush into a practice of magic and witchcraft because it's all the rage, because it's become rather trendy and fashionable, um, without some kind of grounding in at the very least a metaphysical suspiciousness about the universe and its motives, I worry that they are just basically dangling themselves out as bait uh, for various sharks swimming in the deep. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I would say that's on my mind these days uh, is something perhaps slightly akin to what is often and conventionally called cultural appropriation, which is when I see people who think, and I'm speaking particularly of people in academia or some of the circles of academia for whom 
transgression is always an unalloyed good. You want to find whatever is transgressive and go in that direction. Um, there is an ethos of particularly the humanities acad uh, academy that is that finds an irresistible allure and glamour in transgression. And I feel like I'm beginning to see people in academia who are in many ways seem to me to be metaphysically naive, um, perhaps a little bit like the fool in the fool card of the tarot with one foot dangling off a precipice, blight and eyes up, head in the clouds, not a care in the world, heading towards disaster. I see people in that position and I worry about that. But the other thing is that I just get pissed off when I think that academics are strip mining yet another cultural artifact or cultural good for its supposed transgressiveness. First of all, I think, fuck, you're going to blow yourself up inside of six months. And number two, feeling like very often these are the people who are going to talk a raft of shit about cultural appropriation, but it will never occur to them that they are in fact appropriating some shit that I won't say it belongs to other people, because what the fuck does it mean for culture to belong to people? Uh, we can have a conversation about that, of course. Um, but, but mostly a feeling that a bunch of people are throwing themselves what they think is a Halloween party. Mm. And, um, that just, and that, and that bugs me, it gets under my skin, it bothers me a little bit. So those are some two kind of preliminary thoughts. And I don't know if that is even remotely in the ballpark <laughs> of what's been on your mind, Connor. But, yeah, uh, so a couple things. Anyway. I mean, it definitely weaves in and out of that. I mean, I think my sort of starting point for this conversation, and those are definitely two avenues for it. Um, and Jeff, yeah, your dream also is as well is like um, an avenue for it is like, you know, you guys just did an episode on 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 weirding, you know, co corresponding with the course that you're doing, and I think it's clear to people that the the world it feels weird i mean that we, we've sort of leveled up or leveled into some new landscape that we don't really have charted um or maybe charted is not even possible i don't know and what it seems like people's tendency here to do is reach for you know something that seemed to work before and if they're spiritually inclined, or even if not, they have been reaching for magic and for witchcraft. I mean, the permeation of this kind of, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a Halloween store like aesthetic for sure. Um, that's, you know, draped over a lot of people's just kind of ordinary lives where the magical becomes merely ornamental. And that's not to say that there's nothing to ornamentation or aesthetics, but just, um, that it's not what they're saying it is. Um, and they don't know that it's not what they're saying it is, or they do, and they're, you know, fooling themselves. Um, so there's that, but I, I, you know, and I think that the trouble for me is we have a challenge ahead of us that's way more intense than saying we can turn to witchcraft or magic to actually deal with where we're at. 
um, just because materialism is starting to dissolve and confound us and confuse us. And um, there's just a lot of witches and a lot of magicians now. <laughs> and um, I don't know that they're actually getting done what they need to get done. And let me just frame this entire thing before I shut up is like, you know, freedom first. That's for me, the, the principle here. If people, there are plenty of people I'm sure who have, you know, a real sort of Cormac thing to play out with magic and witchcraft. And I, I'm sure, and I definitely did earlier in my life. So I wouldn't tell people don't do it or you're wrong for doing it or whatever. That's not what this conversation is about. Um, for me, it's about figuring out, is this actually up to the challenge? Um, so, I mean, I know we'll have to maybe define our terms, but um, is this actually going to sort of deepen the problem? And that's how I'm starting to feel more and more. And I, I have another story that I'll tell, but I want to give you guys a chance to respond to some of that first. As things get weirder and as some of the kind of baseline assumptions that people like us used to have to struggle with daily kind of uh, start to kind of dissolve. And suddenly, uh, for example, I'll give just the example of UFOs, right? Where um, I was once uh, known as JFO in Toronto when I lived there because my friends made fun of me because I was interested in, in UFOs. And, um, and of course, now uh, I'm having conversations with these old friends and if, They've changed their minds about that phenomenon, uh, whatever it may ultimately be. Um, uh, and so um, things are getting weird and, and certain avenues that seemed closed off or very uh, risky indeed, not risky in terms of uh, what you might find there, but risky in terms of your sanity should you choose to, to, uh, to, to announce yourself as someone who employs those avenues. Uh, as those avenues become available to people, then you know more and more people are going to choose to go down there. And uh, my, my worry about this stuff, especially with magic and witchcraft specifically, uh, I'm using the terms interchangeably because I don't want to make any pass any judgment on Wicca or other things that might be known as witchcraft. I'm talking about the, the practice of ceremonial magic or practical magic. Um, the problem I have with that uh, that that practice is uh, is something I discovered on my own through my own experimentations with it, which is that I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And I was least aware of what I was doing when I was most confident that I knew what I was doing. And that's the nature of the psyche. You know, I've been, um, my wife was telling me about an episode of This Union Life that she listened to recently. She's really into that podcast. And it just st stuck with me as a good example of what Jungian psych psychoanalysis can uncover. You know, it was like a, a young man who throughout his teenage years had been severely anorexic and so wouldn't eat um and of course he had all these spiritual reasons for why he did that he was fasting he was practicing the, he was engaging in these spiritual practices etc but it was only through analysis and through intense introspection and time that he came to realize that what it was it was kind of a peter pan thing is what i understood he didn't want to grow up and so he stopped eating so that his body <laughs> would remain small right he didn't want to to graduate to uh, the next stage of his individuation process such as it was at that age and so um and and 
and he came to realize that there was no way for him to realize that at that point. Um, and, and I find that's why in my own life, I've gone back to more traditional models of practice um, uh, because the um, the rails are kind of set out and I'm, I'm not someone who I am all for freedom and for, you know, for the right, every person's right to choose what they do with their lives. But for me, the choice to submit myself to a religious practice was um, part of that learning experience, a part of that realization that when I was when I was most confident that I knew what I was doing, um, I was least aware of what I was really doing. And so it's like that line from Stalker, Tarkovsky's Stalker. It's like your true desire is something you're completely unconscious of. Mm-hmm. And the minute you start engaging in these practices, uh, what you're bringing into the world is something that you may not have any access to cognitively until it starts to manifest. And so, so it's just, there's a big risk in it is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Piggybacking just at the end of the, the, the latter part of that comment. Um, magic is tricksterish and unpredictable and we all know this um and one reason it is is for exactly the reason that we just uh that jf just said that um it pertains to a level of things that you yourself don't necessarily know anything about you might be completely unconscious of um and actually there's a somebody who is a list uh sometimes listens to our show who does her own uh does her own thing she's a really interesting person stephanie quick um who i've seen referred to as the julia child of sex magic um anyway she's she's really cool and i remember she wrote a blog post i'm not sure if she still has a blog um she's a good writer she wrote a blog post about a weird thing about like synchronicities and writing about them uh she talked about some particular, I completely forget all the details, but some synchronicity where something that was very much a part of her own private life, something very much on the inside of her life suddenly, uh, and even rather alarmingly is on the outside. There's a synchronicity and something that has to do with her intimate life is out there in the world in the form of the synchronicity of course she and only she is equipped to read it to understand the resonance between the outside and the inside Mm. but the point is that it's a synchronicity that's kind of telling on her right uh and and anybody who has pursued anything resembling a magic practice has probably had experiences like that where they find something seemingly on the inside that you thought was all locked up tight on the inside uh mortifyingly out there for all to see if they could understand what it was they were seeing. Right. Um, Mm. And Stephanie made the point that this makes writing about magic, a very different endeavor from writing about most things uh, because you might be telling on yourself when you're talking about those kinds of experiences. I would give that as one example of, I suppose, some of the little dangers that beset the magical practitioner, especially a magical practitioner who is in any way involved in content creation, for example, <laughs> the recording of podcasts. Mm. Um, but I also use that as an example of how magic is just a different kind of thing from the other things we're used to in our life. 
Magic has this, among other things, this weird ability to turn us inside out, to put what's on the inside on the outside. I can't think of many other things in my life that do that. Uh, and and simply the, the differentness of magic as a thing in my life. Um, it's something that makes it radioactive and kind of it's like powerful but dangerous and or or tricksy, unpredictable. Um, we something you know it's such a uh, such a received idea, so such a commonplace idea, and for good reason because it's true that magic is in the domain of the trickster. But it's very commonplaceness kind of anesthetizes us from the fact of just how tricksy it is, just how that tricksiness can manifest in a life. Uh, so that's something. So, you know, like yourself, I have no interest in telling people, warning people off of a magical path. I don't want to say magic is bad or anything. <laughs> um, obviously not. But, you know, sort of to continue from what I was saying at first, my alarm at seeing people, I think, naively wading in is just sort of like, well, if we were going to try and tell such people um, what kinds of things they maybe should keep in mind, maybe that would be one of them. Yeah. So there's a lot in what you guys both said. Um, <laughs> so let me see what, it, I mean, I think that trickstery nature that you're talking about has to do with a few things, right? Which is, yeah, there are sort of trickster, there's a trickster beingness there, but also, I mean, we just don't know how to read. Right. So it's like seeing things m magical or supernatural or whatever is completely different than being able to read them. And so people have encounters, experiences all the time that they don't actually know how to report what's happened because it's very difficult to read. And I include plenty of people who are sort of well-known magical practitioners in that. And myself, obviously, you know, with as certain times in my history, reading things completely wrong because I had no idea how to enter into, I wouldn't call it a language, but the kind of dimension where those things were, you know, legible to me. But Mike, can I quickly give you an example of that just yeah, before you continue? Because yeah. I've had that that experience with the I Ching, which is a divination yeah. system that I've been using for a long time. I use it less and less and less as I get older, but I do still occasionally use it. Um, and uh, sometimes I've uh, gone back over my readings, my past readings, um, and looked at my interpretations of uh, divinations that um, that have that have kind of that have that have happened, you know, events that have happened, choices that have been made. And when I look back, I can see clearly how that divination should have been read, but I didn't read it that way at the time. I was reading it with all kinds of um, probably egoic uh, desires that were getting in the way of getting. But it's perfectly clear what the divination was after the fact. <laughs> but <laughs> developing the skill to read it is a it's a, it's a different thing, especially since it's about yourself, and so you have your own interests. And anyway, sorry to interrupt. No, I, yeah. the perfect place to sort of jump off for it to say, I have two different Duncan stories here. So one is, you know, I just had Duncan Trussell on my show talking with Lisa Romero, who's an occult teacher. Um, and it was the three of us speaking and, you know, he was asking her about psychedelics and she was like, well, I'm not telling you not to use them. She's like, it seems like you use them a lot. She knew right away. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you can hear it in Duncan's voice, you know, that he does a lot of them, man, but he, mm -hmm. you know, but she was like, you know, 
you'll be invited to the party, but do you want to go in through the back door? Um, do you want to crash it? Or do you want, you know, do you want different kind of access to what's happening there? Because, you know, when you take a substance, it works through your organ processes. So you're getting all the processes of your organs along with the experience. So, you know, how do you read it? And Duncan laughed and he said, you know, that's very funny because uh, the trip I'm thinking of that I was asking you about, the beings there literally said to me, why do you keep coming in the back door? (laughs) Um, And, you know, as opposed to a sort of meditative practice. But then the other Duncan story is Duncan Barford. I, I did a reading, I did my book launch in the UK um, for Hawk Mountain with him at Treadwells. And we did it. He, you know, was my conversant, my interviewer, whatever. And um, we did it the day the queen died. They announced the death of the queen, like 15 minutes before the event started. Good Lord. It was a full house. We're in the basement of Treadwell. So here we are sort of sheltered in this magical occult space that's keeping us out of the timeline that's progressing and we're all kind of like what's it gonna be like when we go back upstairs you know (laughs) and um it was really special experience but it came up somehow i have to write a transcript of it because unfortunately the sound recording was so terrible but I, i i will do that and offer it to patrons and and probably but i it came up, something about magic came up and I just looked at the audience and I was like, yeah, I got to say, and I realized this is a really hard thing to say at Treadwell's, like, I don't think most people should be doing magic. <laughs> I don't. I think there's way too much of it. And um, I need to sort of take a little bit of a stand against the the kind of ways that it's being utilized because what's happening is you know, to get things done, we're commanding, you know, elemental beings, we're commanding beings to do stuff for us. And that's a chain of command that I immediately you're entering into a kind of power and force that I'm not interested in being a part of. And what, what would it look like if we didn't do that? So, you know, maybe reframing, and, and there was a guy in the audience who immediately I had to overcome his defensiveness because he was like, well, my daughter and I do eco magic and, you know, like Christianity has like destroyed the world and we're trying to, you know, it was that kind of reflexive. And I was like, yeah, I, I hear you. Like, cause I'd brought up Christianity before. I was like, first of all, the Christianity I'm talking about is really not like the Christianity <laughs> that you're, you're talking about. So that's mm-hmm. fine. I was like, and it, it's fine to have those, you know, like apprehensions about Christianity in general. I was like, but, like still like we can do things that we think are having great effects for the world and they're not i mean people want to put you know silica particles in the atmosphere to block out the sun to stop climate change right. you know i mean right. that we we can do all sorts of things and it doesn't mean anything um in in some senses so the the way of sort of framing all this after we get past the defensiveness of like Maybe not, guys. Like, maybe there's something else here. Um, is like, what is the spiritual if it's not materialist and not merely magical either? So, if we're not engaging in subnature or trying to command the forces of the spiritual world to do what we want to change nature or subnature, and that's, I mean, <laughs> I'm I've just been sort of moving with that question a lot. And again, it's not to tell people to not do magic. I, 
even though I just said, well, maybe we need less of this. There are people who know far better than me after dealing with magic for a really long time that that's what they're meant to be doing in this incarnation. And I, I would not speak against them, but it's just as a general topic, something that I think needs to be considered, you know, with more depth. So what is the spiritual if it's not magical or material? There are pra- like the, the fact that 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 magic involves danger. So we've been talking mostly until your intervention there. Uh, we were talking mostly about the dangers to oneself, like the mm-hmm. risks you take on yourself when uh, you yeah. practice magic. But then there's the risk that you're putting on others when you oh, practice yeah. magic. And I experienced that um, in my twenties. Uh, that you're not just endangering, potentially endangering yourself, but endangering other people. And you're also meddling in forces you simply don't understand, like you're, you're tapping. So it has a, a kind of, uh, there's a kind of analogy there with like um, uh, kind of uh, ecological interference, right? In- interfering in ecosystems, uh, introducing species in new places. And then really with the best of intentions, but not knowing ever how this will play out because the variables are so multiple, so um, infinitely um, there's so, there's so many va- variables and they're so complex and the system like the cane so toad magic yeah. danger <laughs> that you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you, that you, you can't possibly know um, where this will lead and which is like, that's not a reason not to practice, but it seems to me that magic at least in my to my knowledge the practice of magic has always inserted itself in a robust system of religious practice the people who practice magic do so as part of a tradition which has a place for that that place might be a negative place like don't do that but it still inserts itself in the tradition for example like ceremonial magic in the history of christianity was always seen as suspicious was always held in suspect but was always participating in the tradition and so it's like a shadow side it's part of it but we are we don't have these practices so people are going straight to to magic and without a metaphysical structure on which to fall back like for instance and there are magical practices that aren't called that in every religious tradition like one example in the eastern orthodox traditional christianity is um theosis right the process of divinization as it's called in the roman church so the idea there is that you practice um hesychasm a form of prayer it's uh it's got breathing techniques it's got all kinds of of it's got recitations prayers you say and ways of methods of doing it and um it is not something that you that every orthodox christian should be practicing and it's the tradition itself will tell you that in order to practice hesychasm you have to undergo a kind of initiatory process you have to be taught the techniques which are not published anywhere really um you have to be brought into it there's a system there of safeguards to make sure that the people who undertake the practice are ready to do so well the, thanks to alistair crowley and arthur Waite and all our good friends in the late 19th early 20th century the doors were blown wide open uh, when it comes to the esoteric practices of the western tradition uh, in magic. And so uh, it became very easy for anyone to access texts that would have been very difficult to obtain uh, in the past. And so uh, it, it, without, a th- to me, it seems like without a metaphysical and most importantly, without an ethical, a strong moral framework 
to wander into to wade into these waters is very dangerous i think yeah um something you said jf that uh up until this point in the conversation we've been talking about the danger of magic to persons to individuals um but it's precisely on the level of um the transpersonal um or to put it in buddhist speak since buddhism is my own religious tradition um that i've that i am a part of uh for the benefit of all beings right um the the reason why religion and it doesn't have to be even a theistic religion like christianity it could be like you know zen buddhism for instance which is what i practice um the reason that magic and religion have a kind of interdependency even if it's never called that like in zen like nobody talks about magic in zen but nevertheless there is um a kind of interdependency because it's just like magic is uh guided shaped controlled um not only by the existence of a tradition with all of its uh you know all of its um traditional practices and safeguards uh but it also you know religion can contextualize magic because <laughs> most religions that are worth anything sorry i hope this is not a terribly <laughs> controversial thing to say um i but uh most religions are actually concerned not with just what do i want but you know mm. what is right for all beings what do i owe all beings um whether or not it is put in in that kind of buddhistic mm. those sort of terms that i'm that i am currently using and that focus away from the self and towards all beings i think is is really necessary now how do we get that okay the question is if magic is suddenly available to us as citizens of a neoliberal age um how do we reach for magic without it becoming another product another tool another gizmo another hack whose raison d'etre is entirely the service of myself yeah. And the, you know, what the exchange that JF and I have just had here would suggest like, well, one way that that happens is through the contextualization of magic within some kind of religious context, right? Some religious framework. But that is precisely where a lot of modern people are absolutely most resistant to going uh and and will often see magic as the i mean as like somebody who i have unlimited respect and admiration for lionel snell tends to view magic and religion as opposed things mm -hmm. uh and he has good arguments for that which i'm not going to get into i i recognize that um there are going to be people listening to this who are going to strongly disagree with what i'm saying but to me uh the interdependence of religion and magic that's a thing. You can have magic without religion, and you can have religion without magic. But to me, um, that interdependence is an important thing to bring into the conversation. But it's also something that I think is almost destined to be misunderstood. Um, the people feel that religion is, and many people have the best possible reasons to think this, 
they hear religion, the very word religion, and mm -hmm. they what they feel is a boot on their neck. Yeah. You know, yeah. they feel a boot of authority on their neck. Maybe they came from a religiously uh, repressive upbringing, or even if they grew up secular, but they see the appalling destruction that religion can levy in the lives of individuals, for example, violently and uh, homophobic um, religious communities that inflict terrible emotional and often physical uh, abuse on, um, on uh, queer people. In, in their communities. Uh, I hardly need even to say that. It's just, it's obvious, right? Uh, and yet being able to sort of talk about religion as something that is not simply the sum total of social oppressions. Yeah, religion is about the social and it is about that boot on your neck, but it's also about care for the social and about not just you. Mm. Yeah, there's a there's a thing that Goethe said, which is uh, he who possesses science and art also has religion, but he who possesses neither of those two, let him have religion. Because, <clears throat> I mean, it sounds like a little bit of a weird, like crazy straw way to say things, but it is true that, you know, at least in religion, it will sort of start to organize a certain kind of perspective on the world for you, which is hopefully weirder now what hopefully more reflective of how reality works um at least we'll probably have some relation to a text <laughs> that um has you know has the potential to you know give you the doorway to your own experience and your inner life i mean i think you know when we we talk about danger to the self danger to the world you know, I think I'm, I have in mind just the danger of the gesture itself. Um, you know, it always strikes me how many people are into magic and believe that there's some sort of spiritual world working or whatever, but what don't think twice about commanding the beings that they say are there. You know, I mean, that to me is very striking and strange that people would think that there are these forces, these beings, these gods, spirits, fairies, whatever. And then like, they'll just try to wield those forces as if that's, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's not a big deal. And I, I just think, yeah, well, that's, that's a really good mad, point. You know? Yeah. yeah. If you truly believe that these entities exist in some way, depends on what you mean by exist, but like, if you believe that in some sense, all this stuff is real, then what are you doing going around like some colonizer, some <laughs> like just ordering, starting to order these entities around? Would you do that in your own life? Without with even having nurtured a kind of a cultivated a relationship with them. Like, mm. oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to tap Saturn here for, uh, cause I need, <laughs> yeah. I need this or that and the other thing. And um, have you ever offered a prayer to Saturn? Cronus, have you ever spent time with this god? Or who mm -hmm. it's like you're just you're suddenly harnessing energies that you know they might as well not exist when you're not dealing with them, you know. Mm -hmm. And and that's the thing about magic is that, like, oh, just do these things, follow these practices, do like make a sigil, and then the universe will provide. Well, I've not, I've 
one of my pet peeves is when people say the universe wants this. Mm. It, for me, it just seems like a placeholder or kind of like a euphemism for God, first of all. Um, but secondly, it, it there is no universe. There is a, a multiverse. There is a, a, a seething mass of plural entities out there. And when you're saying the universe, you're just saying, I don't know who is I'm dealing with right now, but something's happening. And, um, and there's someone at the other end, but it's not, it's never the universe, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, to the Saturn thing, it's like, even if someone offers the prayer or lights the candle or whatever to Saturn, it's like, I mean, whatever, first of all, whatever even that means, like, oh, well, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll light this candle and draw this picture. And I mean, how much introspection is there even on that process? But then we don't know how Saturn interacts with the other spiritual beings when you decide to employ a fragment of that sort of um, that sort of <laughs> super nature body, you know, amongst all the other beings, you know, here. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I think maybe people could be listening to this and being like, well, you don't know how everything works, but you just do shit sometimes anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's a fine complaint. It's like, I don't know where everything comes from that I use. I don't know even where my own thoughts come from. And I'm destined to make all kinds of horrible mistakes that have horrible consequences. But if I, if I see that, it should change my mission and my approach. And I do think it's something that I appreciate about, you know, weird studies so much is that, you know, there's this Rudolf Schneider line where he says, it's a great mistake to think that people must criticize things when what we must do is characterize them. Mm. And it seems to me that the task is about characterizing the world is about sort of understanding what's going on, even the pockets that we don't, get, you know, even the pockets that we don't understand, at least just trying to characterize them um, rather than come up with sort of critiques and commands and and demands that we're making of reality all the time. Mm. And from there, if I sort of try to characterize my own experience, what do I find there? And what kinds of loving relationships can I have to the spiritual world, which will unfurl into something that might even look like magic but sometimes, but is not is not a command. Mm. Um, and, and just to say one more thing about it, like, isn't it, you know, isn't it that, what is it? The Arthur C. Clarke line. That's like magic is just science. That What is it? It's like something. Uh, any technology, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah. Well, I mean, that sucks. Like magic, <laughs> like, like, so then it's all just science. It's like Uh, people that are, you know, using this stuff and like, this is the way of the world and it's magical and it's mystical and all that kind of stuff. And then saying, well, yeah, you're just using materialistic science. It just has a different, it just, just it's it's still, I pull on this lever and this thing over here happens. You're you're still relying on the same causality. It's like meet the new boss, same as the old boss. You just took. Uh, the appurtenances of a materialist universe and 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 stuck some new bits onto them. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think it's uh, the kind of whole Crowley strain in Western modern Western mm-hmm. magic is clearly a way of understanding magic in terms of a, of science, and um, and for all his insistence that we should, it's not our own will that we uh, manifest through magic, but the will of our 
you know, mm-hmm. true self. Um, uh, just looking at Crowley's own life, I, I I don't know if Crowley's true self is what and you know put him in the asylum at the end, and, you know, addicted <laughs> to heroin. But like, um, like it, so, like it, it, to me, I'm very suspicious of you know. I think ultimately, I'm very suspicious of traditions that put it on the practitioner to find his or her own way through the labyrinth. Um, and I, I find that it's already dangerous enough as it is if you're participating in a tradition that's kind of established, but to go off on your own thinking you can figure out what everyone before you failed to figure out, it's just madness to me. And so, and, and, and especially since there's stuff out there, you know, like our, the next uh, class we're doing in our weirding, weirding series is on zones. That's one of the ones that I'm, I'm going to be doing. So, uh, and one of the things I noticed thinking about zones, so we're talking about the zone here, like uh, the, the kind of trope in science fiction, you know, the zone of mm-hmm. like an annihilation or stalker, this kind of like anomalous place where reality kind of falls apart or starts to fray. What I realized is that zones in science fiction tend to be empty and zo- they're, they're, they're fantastical or mythological counterparts, right? The places of power, or the chanted forests of the old stories tend to be seething with inhabitants, denizens. The science fiction zone is kind of an empty space where you will see your own reflection distorted. Uh, and then the, the fantastical zone is just filled with people, with uh, not people, but entities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that we, we, because we've, because of the buffered self, because of our turning inwards upon ourselves as modern humans and denying all these other entities claim to existence, um, we tend to see the world as just basically a kind of mirror where whatever you bring in is what you'll find in the zone. But the fact is, maybe, the fact may be that those entities are still out there and that when you start engaging in what you think is a solitary practice of magic, you, you develop your own rituals, you're actually in a kind of crowded place. You just think you're on your own and all these other entities are involved. And um, since you don't actually believe in them, since you've psychologized the shit out of them, you just think they're aspects of yourself or they're archetypes of the unconscious or whatever, then you, you're, you're, you're literally, um, you're literally like at, at worst, and this might be a little too harsh, but it's like those drone warriors, you know, in the US who like, like wage drone warfare on little bleeps on a screen, never maybe convincing themselves for moments at a time that these bleeps are not actually humans that they're bombing elsewhere. Like they're engaging with other living things without, while thinking it's all kind of a solipsistic uh, exercise. And that kind of bothers me sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's the fundamental problem with psychoanalysis. I mean, it's, uh, and it's why, even though Freud and Lacan and whomever else like have given us a lot, like Mm. Deleuze is ultimately more correct because it's great to assert that there's a sort of unreachable nothingness in us. And we could take that from the level of our organs doing what they do, our blood doing what it does, our thoughts doing what they do, or matter cohering between the atoms. But the fact is, like, <laughs> just because that's unreachable and looks like nothing to us, that doesn't mean that it's not itself conscious and that's not itself being and doing. And that the, you know, the idea of, you know, the separateness or the space between 
being abundant, being full, being, you know, separateness actually being another manifestation of, of somethingness, you know? Um, I think that that's really, <laughs> that that's a much closer picture. And so when you, you know, what, what do you do? I mean, again, just sort of going back to the reading thing, it's like, there are probably tons of ghosts in this room right now. I mean, it's undeniable in time, if not in space. I mean, in time, there are people buried all around me and like bones and and things that have happened. I'm in Ireland. So long time back, you know, <laughs> like tons of people not too far from here who are just standing there having their conversations, but it's probably also undeniable. And well, maybe in a space is not the right word, but like in some sort of other worldly kind of proximity that there are beings around that I just don't know how to read, you know? Mm-hmm. So they're not apparent to me. They're like that gorilla that wanders across the screen in that experiment where yeah, yeah. The professor shows, yeah, to basketball player, people playing basketball and the professor shows it to his students. And he's like, okay, keep your eye on the ball and tell me where it goes. And in the middle of it, someone with a gorilla suit walks yeah. across the screen, beats his chest and walks off. And the professor says, did you notice anything weird? And very few people have spotted the gorilla. You yeah. Know? Yeah. 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 That's, that's a, that's a great way of putting it. There's a, a meme that somebody put up in the weird studies fan discord uh, that I thought was funny. I can't remember it exactly, but it was something to the effect of like, what kind of asshole do you have to be to be at least on paper, a panpsychist uh, to say you're a panpsychist and then not actually um, interact with any of the beings whose existence you say <laughs> you believe in. Yeah. yeah. And, and one of the, and this actually, this brings up something. That's what cats are, by the way, they're panpsychists who don't interact. Uh, with yeah. Cats and object oriented <laughs> ontologists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what this, what this suggests to me, and this is actually um, maybe hooking up to, some my intemperate remarks at the beginning of this show about um, academics that I see somewhat jumping on the bandwagon, mm. uh, and I and, and I question the depth of their involvement or the, the the sincerity of it. One thing that might be at stake in this conversation is different ways of knowing or understanding, or different weights of understanding. So there's a book by. Um, uh, Japanese philosopher named Nishitani um, called Religion and Nothingness, which I've been reading and which I think is a marvelous book. And early on, I'm having to do this all from memory. I don't have my notes, but like he says something about the difference between cognitive knowledge and a deeper kind of knowing. I won't say gnosis because that just muddies the waters, but like a a, a different kind of knowing that's deeper. It's weightier. And he's like, when I'm talking about knowing something, knowing a spiritual fact, that's the thing I'm talking about. You know, maybe a superficial and slightly misleading way of analogizing the distinction that Nishitani is trying to make uh, is between knowing the rules of a game and knowing how how to play the game, right. like actually having your body being able to, you know, and that's that's the mm-hmm. distinction that's sometimes referred to by the term habitus. Um, but uh, but it's but but as I say, that might be a little bit misleading because what I'm talking about is something deeper, a sense of conviction that um, I. It, I have a conviction, a very deep conviction that human beings that I meet are beings much like myself in that 
mm. calls forth a behavior from me that I don't even have to think about. Like, of course, I'm going to talk to, you know, the the fellow at the Toyota service department, which I spent part of my morning at. Mm. Uh, of course, I'm going to talk to him as a fellow being who has feelings and thoughts and dreams and goals, much like myself, even if they're not the same. Um, and that's an understanding that goes quite far beyond um, my understanding of the arguments of um, speculative realists or object-oriented ontologists. Like, I oh yeah, I read Alfred North Whitehead and I have an understanding of how he understands you know, kind of panpsychism or a philosophy within which panpsychism can flourish. That's quite different from that uh, that mute philosophy, the 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 untheorized philosophy I carry around, philosophy of other minds that I carry around in my doings. And my point is that I think part of the problem is that people can flirt with ideas of magic and they can have an investment. There are different levels of investment. And maybe one thing we're talking about is a level of investment where it's more like understanding the arguments of Alfred North Whitehead than it is going into a forest and having deep, satisfying relationships with the entities that live there. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, don't worry, I won't take us down the uh, corridors of pornography here, but I do think that like the most annoying people in in my life have been the academics who are working on sex work who weren't themselves sex workers. And for a long time, this has started to change a little bit. There was this attitude that somehow they validated sex work by studying it when it was the truth was like sex workers validated the existence of their entire field and study. But by virtue of, you know, allowing them any access at all. And so, you know, you go to parties and, you know, it's like there are academics there and they're like, my friend Heather Burke, who is actually a sex work scholar, but one of the only good ones, she she was just like, hmm. oh, I just hate going to these parties. And like these dudes come up and they're like, I study sex work and porn. What about you? You know, like there's this kind of like false, like gross eroticized edginess that oh my god that is so transgressive yeah exactly what we're hoping you say (laughs) oh shit alchemy great you know and then like you dig into it and it's like the slightest different comment on alchemy than someone who had you know already written something rather banal or whatever anyway Mm -hmm. that was just merely you know historicizing something i mean i think that academia like the Catholic church are invented to bar people from real spiritual knowledge. It's important to have people investigate things through academia and Catholicism um, to understand what these experiences can be drained of much of their spiritual substance. And of course there are versions of academia and Catholicism that give a bit more access and there are heretics, you know, but the heretics are rare and the pathways that take you there are rare. And the function itself is to bar, is to bar access to the mystery. And I think that's a real problem. um, You know, when people are proclaiming and seizing the sort of edginess of the mystery, but not actually having it resonate, radiate, and and express itself through their actual being and not just some shitty jargony paper or a bad 
you know, mass. All right, I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> and uh, I promise you on the next episode, we will get to what sort of tools and gestures we can use, as well as a little bit of a rebuff from um, JF on what I just said there about Catholicism. Uh, we'll also talk about spiritual beings and just a lot more weird, great stuff. Thanks for listening. Bye now. <laughs>